The Lord Jesus continued in this next section of the sermon. We do now move on your outline. We move to um, part five in our outline entitled Rejection of Pharisaic Religionism. He continued to emphasize true heart righteousness by contrasting it with false hypocritical righteousness in the area of three practical exercises or three practical religious activities. And those three areas or of religious activities are giving, speaking of giving to, to the needy, not, not really giving in tithes and offering, but charitable giving, referred to as almsgiving in the scripture, the area of prayer, and then the area of fasting. The result of what we are going to see as we look at these verses can be very humbling. Again, we're getting used to that, aren't we? Very searching and very humbling. But as Christians, we should be anxious and we should be uh, willing to really see ourselves and to understand our deepest motives so that we might confess that which is wrong to the Lord and progress further along our way to Christ-likeness, because that's what it's all about. Once we've been saved, the rest of our life is becoming more like Christ himself, which is the process of sanctification. Now, this, of course, is something that the natural man, the unsaved, unregenerate man, avoids doing at all costs. He avoids self-examination because he would much rather go on thinking that he is fine and dandy that he is okay and that he is really not a bad guy and therefore he has no real need to study the Bible and no real need for a savior because he's a good guy. You know, he'll certainly get to heaven if there is such a thing in his mind. He'll get there because he's a good person. On the other hand, however, we as believers should thank God for the fact that his word is like a, a what? A mirror. It's like a mirror in which we can look at ourselves and uh, see. I just bought this summer. I don't know why I did this, but I did. <laughs> I bought this this magnifying mirror that has a light around it. It's a circle. And I mean, you can see everything. <laughs> yeah, because my eyes are getting worse and worse. And by the way, I found out I had conject- conjunctivitis, conjunctivitis last week. That's why I had trouble seeing those of you that were here, I went home and my whole, this whole eye was just red as fire. So I've given a whole week with, um, out my context. They're doing pretty well now. But um, anyway, I have this magnifying mirror and I can see every, I, I can see things I really wish I couldn't see, but it, in a way it's good because um, I can put my makeup on halfway straight and um, I see every little blemish. And the, the first month I had the thing, it looked like I was going through puberty. <laughs> Because I was poking and popping at all kinds of things. And the, my girl said, what happened to your face? <laughs> but that's how God's word is. It's like a, a magnified uh, mirror that we can look into it. If we're willing, we need to be willing so we can see every blemish, every little flaw, every little area of selfishness and pride. And, and that's good because it is only the woman or the man or the young person who is willing to honestly... Look into God's word, the mirror, and see himself or herself for what he or she really is, who is then able to fully yield to the Holy Spirit to help him or her overcome his blemishes and his weaknesses and his flaws and grow in holiness, grow spiritually. 
God's word, James 1.23 tells us, reflects us to ourselves so that we can make corrections. It's also, the word of God is also described to us in the word of God over in Jeremiah 23.29 as a hammer. I didn't have a picture of a hammer, so we'll get next to the water, but it's described as a hammer. And isn't that exactly... how the word of God is, how it, be, how it acts, because it, it, it's like a hammer in that it helps to break up the areas of our heart that still might be hard. For the unbeliever, it's the word of God that, that works on his heart to, to loosen it up so that he can receive its truth. So it is described to us as a hammer helping to break up the hardened heart in all of us. It's also described, as you see up here in the transparency, as water because it cleanses us. And what, who else can think of another um, illustration of the word? Yes, it's also a light. The word, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It illumines our way. It guides our way through life. It's also called a sword, isn't it? The sword of the spirit, the word of God, because it penetrates. It cuts right into, you know, between the... Joints of our, how's it go? Uh, The word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing piercing even to the dividing asunder of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. See, I can't say it without saying the whole verse. (laughs) Otherwise, I can't figure it out. But So the word of God is described as a number of things, and they're all very accurate. So although going through the sermon may be rather painful, the Sermon on the Mount, yet ultimately for us it is good. It's a good thing that it's causing us pain because seeing ourselves as we are opens us up up to God's grace. And God's grace is what we need for not only forgiveness, but for further spiritual growth. And I assume that that is why you are here, because you want to grow in your spiritual walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to grow in grace as beatific Christians, don't we? You want to be a beatific Christian? where you really are poor in spirit and mournful. I mean, you know, and you grow in those areas. And you're poor, uh, you have a pure heart. And you're a peacemaker. And you're meek. And all the, the beatitude virtues. We also want our salt to be saltier. Or at least I hope you do. And for your light to shine brighter. And we want agape love to be characteristic of us. We want to be practicing the true godly righteousness of which the Lord describes in the sermon. And righteousness is the theme and the subject of the whole sermon, is it not? You see at the beginning of that lesson how I show you how every single section talks about righteousness. Righteousness and practical religion or righteousness and morality or righteousness and discipleship. I can't remember the exact order, but it's in your notes. Righteousness is the theme of the sermon. However... In all of this, there lies another very subtle danger. You see, once we begin to live a life full of all kinds of good deeds, it is easy for us to begin to do our acts of righteousness before others, to be seen by them. And it becomes a temptation for us to even do our acts of righteousness, really, maybe even not so much to be seen of others, by others, but so that we might feel good about ourselves. And that is what we're going to be looking at in this next division of the Sermon on the Mount. As the Lord 
moves us to consider some of our outward acts of righteousness, which we could call some of the actual practices or exercises of our faith. He warns us of a great danger, which is hypocrisy. And if you'll notice, as you look at the verses for today's lesson, he uses the word hypocrites three times in these verses. He uses it in verse 2, verse 5, and over in verse 16. Righteous kingdom citizens will practice their faith or their religion from where? From the, from the heart and not for the praise of others, not for the praise and the notice and the acclaim and the rewards of men. And we're going to notice that little, the little phrase... Phrases like to be seen of men a number of times also in these, these verses. We see to be seen of them, which means to be seen of others. We see the phrase that they may have glory of men. We see it says that they may be seen of men, that they may appear before men. And, the, and those words uh, seen and appear all come from a Greek root word which speaks of theater. So that is sort of like, so they may be seen theatrically before men. The word hypocrite, you know, was originally used to refer to Greek actors who wore masks in order to play the part of someone else in the theater. So in the Greek, you see this play on words between the hypocrite who wore a mask and being theatrical to be seen of others. But he was playing the part of someone else. So the word then eventually evolved to include anyone. A hypocrite is anyone who pretends to be someone or something he isn't. One who puts on a theatrical display or a false identity. The Lord, of course, here is referring to spiritual hypocrisy, chief of which were the religious rulers of Israel at his day. Remember how many times he called them hypocrites. So the Lord Jesus continued to emphasize true heart righteousness by contrasting it with false hypocritical righteousness in the area of, of these three chief um, religious practices, the giving of alms, praying, and fasting. Now, why do you think that he picked these particular three areas? Well, for one thing... They were the three chief areas in which the scribes and Pharisees held themselves in highest esteem. Furthermore, these three religious practices were known among all of the religious peoples of the ancient world. You know, Jewish or other religion, they all knew these practices of giving alms, giving charity to the beggars and the poor and um, the needy, and uh, praying and fasting. So they would be considered the sum total of what it was like to be pious, to, to really be pious. And we see this in the Lord's parable of the publican and the Pharisee over in Luke chapter 18. The self-righteous Pharisee in that parable really thought of himself as the epitome of piety, didn't he? Because... To begin with, he, we find him praying. He, now, he was praying publicly. He was praying out loud, if you can call what he was doing, praying, because he was really thanking God 
that he wasn't like other people. <laughs> what a prayer that is. I thank God that I'm not like, for example, that publican back there. So he was praying. That was his quote-unquote prayer of praise. Then he was bragging about how he fasted two days a week and how he, what? How he gave. He gave of all that he possessed. So we see here how this is, was considered, you know, this, these three practices considered the sum total of what it took to be really pious back in that day. Now, another reason that the Lord probably used the three practices that he did in this section is because one deals with righteousness as it acts towards others. For example, if I give you because you're needy, that's me acting out my righteousness toward another person, toward others. One deals with righteousness as it acts towards God, and that's prayer, right? That's my act of righteousness toward God as I commune with him. And the third one, fasting, has to do with heart righteousness in relationship to oneself. Now, in our discussion of these three exercises of giving, praying, and fasting, we're going to notice that the Lord followed a very consistent outline. Can you see things better today? You notice we have a a new screen. It goes up higher, and I hope you can see better with this screen. So we have a very consistent outline. First of all, in each one of these three subjects we're going to be looking at, he gave a warning about the hypocritical motive and manner of that particular practice, along with his assurance then that whoever um, participated wrongly in that practice, whoever, for example, gave hypocritically, would receive the wrong reward. So he gave a warning, and then he gave his assurance that they would get only an earthly reward. And then second, he proceeded to give a command regarding the holy and the righteous motive and manner for each one of these three practices, along with his promise of of a heavenly reward for those who would do so without hypocrisy. So let's begin our lesson, Take Heed to Be Holy, Unhypocritical, by looking, first of all, at the matter of giving, and for this we're going to look at verses 1 to 4, chapter 6 of Matthew, verses 1 to 4, where Jesus said, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, ye have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Verse 2, Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they, may be, that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. The Lord here gives a serious warning about having the wrong motive when it comes to performing acts of righteousness. Now, in verse 1, when he said, Take heed that ye do not your alms before men to be seen of them, I want you to notice something that you wouldn't notice in the English, and that is that the word alms that he uses in verse 1 is not the same Greek word that he uses for alms in the rest of that passage. It's not the same as the, uh, the word used in verse 2, 3, and 4. 
It's a different word. In verse 1, it speaks of righteousness or acts of righteousness. So really, verse 1 is setting the warning and the principle for the entire fifth section of the sermon as we talk about almsgiving, praying, and fasting. It is setting for us the warning and the principle. It really should be read like this. Take heed that ye do not your righteous acts or your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them otherwise ye have no reward of your father which is in heaven and then beginning in verse 2 he actually starts to talk about charitable giving alms giving and that's his first example which he assumed that those who professed faith in god and in the old testament scriptures he assumed that they would participate in giving in alms giving because god had so commanded Many times in the Old Testament, for example, Deuteronomy 15:11 says, God speaking, I command thee, saying, Thou shalt open thy hand wide unto thy brother, to thy poor, and to thy needy in thy land. Proverbs 19:17 says, Blessed is he that considereth the poor. And then there are uh, other scripture passages as well in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament tell us we should as christians we should be giving to those in need by the way almsgiving as i said earlier is not part of our tithes and our offerings but it is actually referring to giving charity to the poor and needy so it's above and beyond our tithes and offering and it's a good thing to do and it's a right thing to do and jesus fully agreed with that however what he is concerned about was was with how the giving is done. True charitable giving, true almsgiving, involves compassion and mercy. Actually, the word, the Greek word for alms has at it, its root the word mercy and compassion. Also, you know, we are to have wisdom in our giving. We need to guard against indiscriminate giving which can oftentimes do more harm than good. For example, you know, if someone who was obviously had a problem with the drinking came to you and wanted some money, you have to be discriminate about giving him the money because he might just go out and buy himself a bottle of liquor. The best thing to do would be maybe take him to the grocery store and buy him a loaf of bread or something. But we have to be very wise in our giving. Uh, because some can, some of our giving can even encourage idleness. So we have to have wisdom. The Lord's concern in this passage is the motive of our almsgiving. Uh, aside from the wisdom part, he's concerned with our motive. Sadly, much, if not most, of the charitable giving in this world is done for recognition. <laughs> and this is why the world announces who has given what. Now, have you noticed this lately in the last couple of weeks on the, on the news? They will announce to us who gave what for the Katrina victims. Walmart, I remember distinctly, and it's wonderful. I'm glad they gave it, but, you know, it's like, da-da-da-da. <laughs> Walmart gave a million dollars. So this is why the world announces who gave what in the media and on donors' lists for publicly supported institutions, which list names under such titles as lifetime members. Do you get things like this in the mail? You know, if you give so much, 
you can be on our lifetime membership list. We might even send you a gold star. <laughs> or you can be on the president's, in the president's club. Or you can be considered one of our patrons or one of our, you know, if you don't get quite so much, you're just a friend. <laughs> this even occurs far too often. This even occurs in religious circles, including Christian churches and ministries where people want their giving to be noticed. They want to be praised by others. They want to have a stained glass window with their name on it. Like this woman who's going to polish hers. <laughs> uh, they want to have a room named after them. Now, there's nothing wrong with honoring somebody, I think, you know, after they've gone on to be in glory, to honor somebody with that. But, uh, you know, to give just so that you can have a plaque on the pew or something like that is sort of what the Lord is talking about. It's not sort of what the Lord is talking about. It is what he's talking about. If the motive is for the recognition of others, then this recognition, the Lord says, will be their reward. But it will be their only reward. They'll get that plaque on the pew, but that's it. That's the only reward they'll receive. The believer who gives with the wrong motive will receive nothing from God. And that's exactly what he says in verse 1. When people give hypocritically, actually the Greek there implies that they have their reward in full. Okay? In full. Nothing more is owed them. When people give hypocritically to be seen and praised by others for their generosity and their spirituality, they get what they want. If that's what they wanted, that's what they get. You know, the acclaim of men. But that's, that's their payment in full. They receive the temporary earthly praise of, of men. You know, just one flashing moment of glory, and then it's soon forgotten. How many people ever remember after somebody has given something? It's just one, it's like the blast of a trumpet and it's over with. If we seek men's praise, we forfeit God's praise and his eternal reward. We will be empty-handed in eternity. And that's the worst place to be empty-handed, is in eternity. So that's his warning. Now, um, in verses 1 and 2, he talks about wrong motive and wrong manner, which I have subtitled Sounding Trumpet. Many of the religious rulers of Israel at the time of Christ were hypocrites, sad to say, and the Lord himself referred to them as such on several occasions. Just go to Matthew 23, and you can see how many times he called them hypocrites. They pretended to be something that they were not. They either deceived themselves into thinking that they were spiritual, and I think a lot, I think most of them did that. I think most of them actually deceived themselves. They were self-deceived hypocrites. They really thought they were spiritual. Or, and there were probably some that were this way, the second way, they knew that they were not spiritual, but they played the part in order to appear spiritual. So they, there were some of each. Now, some people, as you see up here, some people have thought that there is a contradiction with the Lord's words over in Matthew 5, 16, in the similitudes, where Jesus said, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
They read that, and then they look at what we just read in Matthew 6, 1. Take heed that ye do not your alms, your works of righteousness, before men to be seen of them. And they conclude that there's a contradiction. The Lord said, you know, in one, let your, do your works before men that they might see your good works and glorify God. And the other one, he says, don't do your good works before men to be seen of them. However, what seems to be a contradiction is no contradiction at all. The similitude verse is, and that's the one in um, chapter 5, is telling us to live righteously and unashamedly before men for the glory of God our Father so that others are drawn to him through the light of our testimony. We're not to hide our light under a bushel. That's what he had just been talking about. We're not to hide the fact that we are a Christian. We're not to be a secret, silent Christian. We're not to keep the message of salvation to ourselves. We're not to be a shamed Christian. We're not to be shy. We're not to be ashamed of, of being a Christian. That's what he's talking about there. But the words that he spoke in Matthew 6, 1 speak of an entirely different situation. He... In this verse, he is condemning the glorifying of self. The hypocritical religious rulers were not giving charitably or praying or or fasting so that men might see their good works and glorify God. They were participating in those activities, so and they were doing so openly, and they were doing so very ostentatiously, very showy, so that men might see their good works and glorify who? Glorify them. So they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites who were performing their religious activities to glorify themselves and not God. Alexander McLaren, in his commentary, says this. He says, this is the difference, and this, I'm not sure, is in your notes, but it's really good. He says, pious souls are to shine and yet be hid. You get it? We're to shine and yet we're to be hid. That's another one of those divine paradoxes of Scripture, isn't it? It it sounds like it would be impossible, but it's very easily understood and solved by the obedient believer. Most of you can understand what he's talking about. And I do have in your notes, A.B. Bruce said this. He said, we are to show when we're tempted to hide. So, for example, I'm walking in the grocery store and there's somebody that I see that I could maybe witness to and I'm tempted to not do it. Maybe give the, the, the bag boy a tract or something. And I'm tempted not to do it. I'm tempted to hide. Well, that's when I'm to show. That's when I'm to shine. I'm to shine when I'm tempted not to. And on the other hand, I'm to hide when I'm tempted to show. That's a very good way to remember this principle. The unrighteous and hypocritical, vain glory type of way to give is to give blowing your own horn. And that expression by the way, most likely came from the strange and common practice of the religious Jews of Christ's day, which was for the temple or the local synagogue, for the the trumpets from the temple, to, to be blown to announce to the citizens 
of either Jerusalem or whatever local town or city it was, that it was time to come and give. So there would be a certain kind of blast from the trumpet or the synagogue that would announce to the people, okay, come to the temple and give. And this provided for the religious rulers, I guess they're the ones that came up with this, because it provided them a great way to appear very spiritual in their giving. You know, because as soon as they heard that trumpet blast, they would rush off as fast as they could go to the temple. And, you know, they would do so with a great look of piety on their faces, and everybody would look and see, oh, look how fast he's, he's going to get to the temple to give. Isn't he spiritual? Isn't he wonderful? Sometimes they, the Jews, the religious rulers, would even arrange to have a trumpet blown on a busy street corner to announce that they were about to distribute some of their wealth. So they would carry with them their own private trumpeteer. And he would, he would blow the trumpet and then people would look around, who's going to give? You know, the beggars would come running and there would be a big, a big show of this particular scribe or Pharisee or whoever it was, a wealthy person. That he, was, that he was giving, and everybody would say, oh, isn't he spiritual? Um, Dr. A.T. Robertson said that a missionary to India told him that the Hindu priests do this. They continue to this day to do this practice of sounding a trumpet to get a big crowd when they are about to give alms or exercise some other religious activity. Now, in the court of the women, in the temple, there were located 13 large brass trumpet-shaped receptacles. And those receptacles were for temple tithes and other charitable contributions. When a person, now it was in the court of the women because the women would be allowed to go in there and also give. Men and women could, you know, men passed through the court of the women on the way to the court of men. So it was a very busy place. And it was also, it, so it, it doubled as the temple treasury. So when a person threw, uh, as opposed to gently sliding, when a person threw a good amount of coins into one of those large trumpet-shaped uh, receptacles, it made a loud clanging noise. You know, like if you threw a lot of uh, dollars into something brass, instead of just trying to slide it down gently, it would make a lot of clanging noise, wouldn't it? Bang, 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 bang. So everybody in the temple would turn around to see who had given so much money that it made so much noise. So it was a big competition to see who could make the most noise when they were throwing in there. Now, in our day and age, we have the opposite Well, if you throw a lot of coins into the into the offering tray and it makes a noise, people look and say, boy, that's a cheap person. <laughs> I guess they didn't have paper money back in those days. Now our, our offerings are silent, or they, you know, should be for the most part. Even a dollar is silent. But they, so this is where, this is where that term blowing one's horn actually originated. Blowing your own horn came from that, that practice, that hypocritical practice. Now, the Lord Jesus in the sermon was seriously warning believers against such showy, self-glorifying, hypocritical displays of a good practice. It is a good thing, as we said, to give, but not in this kind of manner. Hypocrisy is often evidenced by the manner in which it is carried out. 
Mere generosity and philanthropy are not enough in the Lord's eyes. A person's motive must also be pure and righteous. The religious rulers of Israel, and of course others who followed their example, were not giving for the glory of God, or even for the benefit of the needy, really. They weren't giving because they really had great big hearts. We talked about that last week when we saw they really weren't very loving toward the the down and outers. They were really giving for the praise of men. And this abuse is just as common, if not more so, today as it was back then. Do we not well wonder what might happen to most of our great national charities if there were no IRS deductions for charitable giving? What would happen? A lot of them might dry up. What about if there were no published subscriber lists or bronze plaques or rooms to be named for major donors or announcements to be made on the mass media? or pictures to be taken with starving children, or pictures to be taken with a handicap, or if there were no celebrity benefits. The same question can be asked of Christians. The true motive of our giving must not be for self-glory. It must not be to pat ourselves on our own back or or for men's praise, but the true motive should be to serve and to glorify God. And can churches and ministries get caught up in this just as much as the secular world does? Absolutely. I, I grew up in a church that actually posted in the foyer of the church a list of all the, all the tithes that by name the, and the contributors. So, you know, at the top of the list was the person who gave the most and it had how much they gave and then it went down from there. Can you imagine that? I mean, that is actually contributing to this kind of hypocrisy. And that's why I hated church. I hated it because my dad gave us each a quarter every week. So our name, he didn't come to church with us. My mom didn't come to church, but we gave 75 cents a week. And there it was always posted at the bottom of the list for everybody to see. (laughs) And that was so embarrassing for us as little children. It was terrible. What What a hypocritical thing to do. All right, now let's talk about the right manner and the right motive for giving, and that is not with sounding trumpets but with silent hands. In verses 3 and 4, let me reread those. Jesus says, But when thou doest alms, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth, that thine alms may be in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret himself shall reward thee openly. Here the Lord used a rather extreme figurative illustration to warn us to not even give our good deeds uh, personal attention. You know, no self-praise even. When we give, it should be done in such a spontaneous way and, and then so quickly forgiven that our left hand doesn't even know what the right hand has done. Now, of course, it's assumed most people are right-handed, so when they give, they're going to give with their right-handed. If you're left-handed, you can just switch this backward, all right? Our giving, in other words, should be performed with the same attitude as the most daily, routine things that we do with our right hand. But what do we do with our right hand that you don't even think about? I mean, you brush your teeth, you wash your face, you comb your hair, you pick up a piece of dirt on the floor, you um, feed the cat, the dog. I mean, all day long, you write. And do you think 
about all the things that you do during the day with your right hand? That would drive you crazy if you had to think about all the things that you do with your right hand. Uh, so that's how we're to give. We're to just give so spontaneously, so routinely, so non-thinkingly that our left hand doesn't even know about it. Um, and we do, we do many things during the day without making a list of them, without keeping a record of them. The idea is that not only are we not to sound a trumpet or draw attention to our giving in any way whatsoever, but we are not even to make a big deal about it to to ourselves, you know, oh, what a good boy am I. Not even that kind of a thought. No self-praise, no self-advertisement, no self-satisfaction. This is where it gets painful and convicting, doesn't it? You see, the Lord was dealing here with a very subtle temptation that Christians can yield to quite easily, and that is to refrain from an outward show in giving, but inwardly to pat ourselves on the back for our profound humility, our profound um, goodness, and you know to think to ourselves how generous we are. Like I said, oh, what a good boy am I. I certainly must have the gift of giving. Look how much I give. We must all guard against this. Do not even keep a diary or a journal of your good deeds. Do not keep numbers. This is where I drive Terry kind of crazy. And You know, whenever, whenever I tell people that I teach a Bible study, do you know automatically what the first question is? I'd say 90% of the time the first question is, well, how many do you have? And I say, I don't know. We have a good number. But I don't count. I don't want to count. I don't want to know. I don't want that to even be a temptation in my mind to count or know. We just have great women. Who cares how many of them? But the people always want to know that, don't they? We have every one that God wants us to have. That's right. That's a good... (laughs) We're not to keep uh, mental tally sheets. Don't give yourself mental merit marks. Forget your goodness. Forget what you've done. Focus on God only and follow him. Obey him. But don't get proud about your obedience, which is a temptation. Our lives are just totally to be given to him and in serving others for his glory with an uncalculating generosity. When we help others, you know, don't look around to see who is watching you as you help that other. Just just do it. Do, do it to please God. The, uh, the giving that pleases God the most is the giving that is done and then forgotten. Don't be concerned with giving to the point that you become self-conscious about it. Because there's a real danger that self-consciousness over good deeds can quickly degenerate into self-righteousness. Keeping accounts in the heart may turn an act of mercy into an act of vanity. Don't congratulate yourself on a deed well done. Simply dismiss it, and then you know what? Press on to do more. God is faithful to reward his own for their righteous conduct. You know, we don't have to even worry about the reward. 
Just do it, do it, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord rather than for men. And don't do it for men so that you feel good about yourself. I could add that there. But just do it and trust God to reward you in his time. It says in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. God sees everything, doesn't he? God who is in secret, it says that a number of times in our passage. God who is in secret sees it all. He sees us in our private prayer closets. He sees what our right hand is doing. Although we are to forget about our labors of love, we're to forget what our right hand is doing. Guess what? He does not forget. We're to forget, but he doesn't forget. Notice that the Lord tells us that it is our Father, he says in verse 1, it is our Father, and again elsewhere, in verse 4, that's where I mean to be. Verse 4, he said, our Father who will reward us. Doesn't, isn't it neat that he didn't say our Master? Doesn't a Father give far better than a Master would? A Master gives his servant just what he earns and no more. But a Father gives his son or his daughter exceeding abundantly above all that they would think or ask, right? Coming from our heavenly father, and that's just speaking of an earthly father, but coming from our heavenly father, the rewards that he will give will be the best rewards imaginable. Now, we're not told what those rewards will be, but God is not cheap. (laughs) He does not give cheap rewards. His rewards will be exceeding abundantly exceeding abundant and they will be lasting and they will be satisfying rewards and they will be rewards that will not ruin our character as many rewards of men do you know a lot of men are willing to um to sell their character for a reward for men's praise rewards of men can oftentimes be detrimental to one's character how many people sell out just for the praise of others. But God's rewards will not destroy our character. They will not ruin us. The principle of the last two verses, verses 3 and 4, in this section on uh, almsgiving is this. If we remember, God will forget. Yeah, that's it. If we remember, God will forget. But if we forget, God will remember. Our responsibility is to meet the needs of others and let God do all of the bookkeeping, not us. Now, regarding prayer, and um, before we read that, let me just say that because the Lord spent a lot more space in his sermon speaking on the subject of prayer. Here we are. No, that's the wrong one. Well, that'll do here. We've talked about giving, now we're moving to prayer, but there is, I think there's another one in there too. But because he gave a lot more space to prayer, we can um, probably speculate that it is the most important. Of the three that we're talking about, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, he emphasizes the prayer the most. Now, in this lesson this morning, we're just going to look at verses 5 and 6, what he has to say. But next week and the week to follow, the next two weeks, we'll be talking about verses 7 to 15. Very, very interesting um, topic of conversation as we look at 
the, the, the greatest pattern for prayer ever given to man. And that's what it is. It isn't a prayer that we're to recite just, you know, automatically and meaninglessly. The Lord's Prayer, which should be called the Disciples' Prayer. But it's, the Lord is giving us a pattern for prayer. And that's what we'll be looking at next week and the week to follow. But for now, let's look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus said, And when thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they may be seen of men. Verily, I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into thy closet. And when thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall open thee, shall reward thee openly. What is prayer? Exactly. It is communication with God. And all true kingdom citizens, remember this whole sermon is spoken for the benefit of kingdom citizens. If you're truly a born-again child of God, you are a kingdom citizen. All of us who are kingdom citizens are expected to pray. That is understood that. Oh, it tells us that we are to even pray without ceasing. We are to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make our requests known unto God. We're to come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and to find grace to help in time of need. Many, many uh, scriptures which tell us that we are to pray. The Lord's restrictions, which he reveals in this section of the sermon on prayer have to do with not praying of course hypocritically which is what we'll look at today but also to not pray as the heathen do and we will talk about that a little bit this morning but mostly we'll save that for next week as we see in verse 7 he said but when ye pray use not vain repetition as the heathen do so not to pray hypocritically and not to pray Heathenishly, I guess we could make up that word. <laughs> the primary problem which, with much of the praying of the scribes and the Pharisees and the other uh, religious Jews, hypocritical religious Jews, as is true with the prayers of many people today, was that those prayers were focused on self rather than on God. Isn't that what we saw with that Pharisee in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican? Boy, was his prayer focused on himself. I'm so glad that I'm not like other men. Their motive was wrong. Now, another problem was that, of course, they were praying in a heathenish way, with a heathenish method. Over the centuries of, being, of having been surrounded by pagan peoples and all the, the false practices of the heathen religions, the Jewish people or, or their leaders had gradually become influenced by some of the pagan methods and manners of prayer. The prayers of the pagan people, as can be seen by the prophets of Baal, when they were praying up there on Mount Carmel, you know, against Elijah. Remember, they prayed from morning till sunset. And it says they cut themselves and they did all kinds of things trying to get Baal's attention. But it says they repeated all day long, O Baal, hear and answer us. And they just kept repeating it, repeating it, repeating it. Uh, the pagan prayers of all the various pagan peoples were repetitive. Same thing over and over again, which the Lord calls vain repetition. 
They were lengthy. They were routine. They were memorized. And they were ritualistic. That's praying as the heathen pray. Many of the Jewish prayers today, even today, are read entirely from a prayer book. The danger of this is that they are not spoken from a person's heart at all. They're just rattled off without much thought. They had prescribed prayers for absolutely every single occasion. A birthday, they have a birthday prayer, they have a circumcision prayer, they have a sunrise prayer, they have a sunset prayer, they have every kind of prayer that you can imagine. And they were read or quoted from memory in a ritualistic, routine sort of way. Even in kind of, uh, you see this in pagan religions as well, in in a superstitious kind of way. Like if I repeat this little mantra enough, Um, the gods will be good to me. Or if I repeat this little chant, yes, thank you, or this Hail Mary or whatever, over and over again, I will finally gain the attention of heaven. And so there's a lot of even superstitious kind of feeling in doing that. Um, And they're, they're not said from the heart. They're not prayers that flow from the heart of the person in a submissive, humble, worshipful, faithful kind of way. Most Jews imitated the pagan-originated rote memorization type of prayer. You know, if you go to Israel, you will see at the Wailing Wall, for example, and I remember even on the plane ride over to Israel, there were some Orthodox Jews on our plane, and at a certain time of the day they put on their little prayer shawl like this man is and they put their phylacteries on their forehead and then they would read word for word and they would read it so fast because there was one man I remember he was right near where I was sitting in the plane it's an obligation you know and I can't I thought well that can't possibly be coming from his heart it's just reading what somebody else wrote Israel's religious rulers worst problem with regard to prayer was that so many of them loved to pray openly and they loved to pray ostentatiously so that they could be seen of men. Now, I know there's people that probably do this in Israel. They go to the Wailing Wall and they truly wail and they cry out to God, you know, peace, peace, give us peace, send the Messiah genuinely from their heart. But the temptation is how many of them are doing that to be seen of men? And, and even out of feeling like it's a religious obligation. How many of us uh, go to church sometimes, not because we're going to, to worship God, but to be seen of others so that others won't think, oh, she's backsliding. Where has she been? Why isn't she there? This, there's a real danger here. But so many of them, the Jewish leaders, were, were going so that, so that they would be seen of men. We notice that they did not love to pray. It doesn't say they love to pray. It says that they loved to pray publicly, where they had an audience to hear and admire them. They loved to pray in the most prominent places, where they would be seen by the largest number of people. They would go go to great lengths to make sure that they were on the busiest street corners when the trumpet would sound at 3 o'clock to announce prayer. They they would purposely orchestrate their, their day 
so that they were on the busiest street corner when that trumpet blew and announced the prayer time so that, that, that they would then be able to pray publicly and display their eloquent vocabularies and their theological knowledge to those who were gathered around them because they truly loved the praise of men. Now, the Lord here is not condemning public prayer. That's not, not a problem because we know there's many times in Scripture where men prayed publicly. He himself included. He prayed publicly. That's not the problem. But what is wrong and what is hypocritical is when prayer is performed publicly with the wrong motive. And that motive is to appear pious before others and to gain their esteem and their, and their praise. Those who pray to receive the praise of others, those who, we could say, go to church in order to be seen of others, those who sing in the choir in order to be seen of others, those who teach a Sunday school class in order to be seen of others, or work for a charity or whatever you want to put in there, those who teach a Bible study, bring it right to home, who, those who do these things for the praise of others, which is what is called vain glory, receive their reward in full when they get what they want, and that is the praise of men. The Lord Jesus said they have, that's their present tense, notice, they have their reward. And when you choose men's rewards over God's rewards, that's a terrible loss. That's all you get. That's all you get is men, men's reward. Well, <clears throat> he gives us then, verse 6, the, the right way to pray. Um, our most meaningful, of course, it's, like I said, there's nothing wrong with praying publicly, but our, we all know that our most meaningful times of prayer, our most intimate communion with God is always private. We tell God things in private that we would probably never tell another human being. In public is not the place for our regular prayer times with God. Would you agree? Holy, properly motivated prayer is best, uh, best uh, um, accomplished or accessed in our quiet, secluded closets, quote-unquote. Besides the fact that doing so removes us from all kinds of um, distractions, you know, don't, pray, don't find a place to pray where the, the TV is going on or where the telephone might ring. I mean, it never fails to ring when I start my quiet time. I just can't believe it. So I have to sometimes even turn my cell phone off. Um, but, but it removes the temptation to be seen and heard of men when we remove ourselves to some quiet place. Jesus always took himself to some remote area when he prayed, didn't he? Find some place in your house and some time of day where you can get away from the children, if you have children in the home, get away from the dogs and the pets and your husband and the telephone and the television and uh, go to that quiet place and have that be your intimate place where you, where you commune with God. Because then you're not tempted. We're not tempted when we go into the closet to, be, to fall into the trap of those who might be listening and, you know, pat ourselves on the back. Remember that we are to pray for one another. And this is when we are praying publicly. We are to pray for one another and not to one another. And that's, that's difficult. And I fall into that. I, I know I fall into that trap to pray to one another rather than uh, for one another and to God. And holy praying, by the way, does not necessitate some prescribed 
prayer manual. It is much, much better for prayers to come from our own hearts than for them to be something that someone else has written. Now, I know that there are churches where the prayers are read entirely from a book. And, you know, if you can really concentrate on the words and pray those words from your own heart, fine. But the temptation is to just read them and not always to think of them. And God is far more pleased with a a prayer that really comes from your own heart, No no matter how much better someone else might have expressed something. You know, some of us have that feeling that if we just don't have the vocabulary, it's just not enough. God doesn't care what our words are. He's looking at the thoughts of the, of the heart and mind anyway, not the words. I mean, you look at some of the prayers, the greatest prayers in the scripture are just little short, Lord, save me kind of prayers. <laughs> Be merciful unto me, a sinner. Um, and we can pray anywhere. We can pray any time of day. Isn't that wonderful? You don't really have to go into your closet. You know, it's good to have a a particular place, but if you're riding along in the car, you can pray. You can pray uh, like this surgeon here right before surgery. You can pray anywhere, anytime. Pray without ceasing is really what we're supposed to be doing. Our prayers should come from the heart. Um, Neither should they consist of vain repetitions as the heathen do. We talked about that. You know, God already knows what we have need of before we even ask. You think that he's hard of hearing, that we have to keep saying the same thing over and over and over again? No. You know what that does when you say something? Now, that's a little different than being persistent in our prayers. If you're persistent about, for example, somebody getting saved, you pray for that person every day. But you don't have to say, May Joe be saved, Lord. May Joe be saved, Lord. May Joe be saved. And then feel like, really, he will be saved if you said it a hundred times. That shows that you don't have, not only do you think that God is deaf, but that he's not omniscient. He said it. He knows what you have need of before you even ask. He wants you to ask, but you don't have to ask him a hundred times like the pagans do. And we will cover more of this in the next lesson. Um, one more thing, let me see this. Do, also notice that he said, pray to thy father. He said, pray to thy father. Look at verse 6. He did not say, pray to my mother. He did not say, pray to your favorite saint. He said, pray to thy father. You know, and then he gives us the right reward in verse 6. He says, Father, which is seeth in secret, shall reward thee openly. One day at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, you know that many obscure believers, people we have never, ever heard of, will one day openly be rewarded. What we do does not have to be public in order to be rewarded. It just has to be real. When prayer is sincere and when it is properly motivated so as to glorify God and to seek and to know his will, he will reward it one day and he will do so openly. He might even reward it in this world with answered prayer. Although the, uh, the, uh, imply, what is implied in the text here is that further eternal reward will be received. And as I said before, no specific rewards are stated, but the fact that the source of the reward is God 
whatever those rewards might be, you can count on the fact that they will be good. In fact, they will be perfect. It does pay to do right, ladies. It does. Now, you, we might have to wait a while, but our, our rewards for our acts of righteousness will come one day, and we will not be disappointed. So whatever you do, do it for the glory of God and not for the praise of men. Now, our final practice is that of fasting. The word fast in the Greek language means to abstain from food. You all knew that, didn't you? Many of both the Old Testament saints as well as the New Testament saints, we are told, did fast. We know that many of the early church fathers also fasted, as well as such men as Martin Luther, John Calvin, uh, George Whitefield, Charles Wesley, and many, 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 many other godly Christian men and women fasted. However, this is interesting, fasting is never commanded in the scripture, except for one fast a year, Old Testament, no longer applicable. It was the Day of Atonement. They were to fast in preparation for the Day of Atonement. The one day when the holy, when the um, high priest would go into the holy of holies, they did. That was a commanded fast. That's in Leviticus 16:29. But uh, since we've had our Lord, uh, the once-for-all sacrifice, uh, since He was on the cross, the Day of Atonement has ceased to exist. It's not necessary any longer. So, fasting is not ever commanded for the church. It's never commanded. Therefore, we cannot say that it is required of us, but it is shown to be a practice by many, many godly examples, including the Lord himself. Remember last year? What did he do in the wilderness for 40 days? He fasted, yes. It's not a compulsory practice. It is a voluntary practice. By our Lord's day, the practice of fasting had been perverted very much like all these other aspects of Jewish religious life. The religious leaders used and even taught that fasting was a means to gain favor with God. And they used it hypocritically as a means, once again, for them to gain the attention of other men. I'll find my picture of that sad-looking little Pharisee there. In, as we mentioned before, in Luke 18, it told, told us that that Pharisee said, I fast twice a week, you know, and I give of my tithes. They did fast twice a week, all the religious leaders. It was on the second and the fifth day of the week, which just happened to be, I'm sure this was just coincidence, of course, just happened to be the two major market days. For the Jewish people. So you see, uh, the cities and the towns of Israel would be full of farmers and merchants and shoppers that would go into town, you know, to buy their, their food for the next few days, and I'm sure they'd be sampling some of the food products, the figs and the olives and everything, and here would be these scribes and these Pharisees amongst them with these long-drawn pathetic-looking faces going about, you know, showing everybody how spiritual they were because they were fasting. Their motive, again, stated in verse 16, was that they may appear unto men to fast. 
in order to draw attention to themselves, they would purposely wear their oldest, most soiled, even they, I read that they even would throw dirt on some of their clothing to make it look soiled. Some of them would even tear, tear it, you know, so it would look really raggedy and worn. And they would purposely mess up their hair, you know, so that they would look awful and they would throw ashes and dirt on themselves. Some of them would wear sackcloth. And then the extra zealous religious leaders even used makeup to make themselves look pale. They, they put on a very sad countenance. Of course, they didn't go amongst the people smiling, you know. They, they put on this long face like this fellow up here so that they would look very pathetic, very lean, very hungry. And this would gain them the sympathy and the approval of all those people who were in town for market day. So they had turned an occasion for spiritual self-discipline into one for pompous and showy self-righteousness. Jesus said once again, they have their reward in full. They uh, want men's attention, and that's what they get. No more will be paid to them. Now, the holy practice of, righteous, of fasting in verses 17 and 18, as opposed to the pretentious, hypocritical fasting, holy fasting is a legitimate form of spiritual devotion. Even though there is no command given to us in the New Testament that we are to fast, it is mentioned 30 times and always mentioned with favor. Paul himself fasted on several occasions. The disciples fasted. You remember when Jesus uh, told his followers um, that they didn't need to fast when the bridegroom was with them? But he said, when the bridegroom departed, then shall you fast. So that's not quite a command, but it's certainly his strong approval of the fact that we should fast. However, again, the holy motive should be to seek the Lord's will for something specific. In every single scriptural account that does mention fasting, it is always mentioned with prayer. You can pray without fasting, but it is unbiblical to fast without praying. Those two are always together, prayer and fasting. Uh, the method, he says, is that you should get up and do everything to look as perfectly normal as you would on a regular day when you weren't fasting. You're to get up, you wash your face, you shave if you're a man, you comb your hair, you put on your makeup, whatever, if you're a woman. You do nothing whatsoever to attract special attention to yourself, to the fact that you are fasting. You are not to put on a sad countenance like they did to be noticed, but you are to put on a smiling face and go on about your normal activities. You don't pick a day to fast when you know you'll be going out with the girls for lunch, you know, and they'll all be eating and you'll be sitting there with a glass of water. You don't do that purposely to draw attention to yourself, you know, and they'll think how spiritual you are. That's hypocritical. The reward for one who fasts properly with the right motive and the, in the right manner is that God the Father who sees in secret shall reward you openly. When fasting is genuine and when it is done with a motive of intense concern for the Lord and for the Lord's work and for the Lord's will, then it will be rewarded by him. Now, 
Last thing is there are four ways to approach any religious responsibility. First of all, we have seen that we can perform it outwardly to be seen by men. That's the hypocritical way. We can do that, and the reward we will get is men's praise. That's it. That's our reward in full. Secondly, we can do it outwardly to shine for God. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's the right way. You're doing it to shine so God will get the glory. And there you receive God's praise. Then we can do it secretly, like the Lord says to do, secretly in our closets, anonymously give, but we can inwardly congratulate ourselves and pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, what a good boy am I. And then all we'll get is self-praise because, see, men didn't know we were doing it. They can't praise us, and God isn't going to praise us. So all we get is our own pat on the back. Then the last way we can do it secretly to serve God, which is good. That's holy. That's a holy way to do it. And there again, we will receive God's praise. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for this day again. We thank you that, um, that you convict our hearts with your word. We, th we just do pray that we will each of us search ourselves intensely in order to examine what our innermost motives for our um, religious practices are, and that if we find we are prone to use them for our own ends and, and for our own self-glory, Father, that we would confess such hypocrisy. We know how oftentimes we are inclined to do good things anonymously, and yet we go home and we inwardly congratulate ourselves. And this is just as hypocritical in your sight as an outward and showy display would be. So we ask you, Father, that you would give us your grace. We ask that you would give us your forgiveness and help us to get to the point in our service for you that our left hand does not even know what our right hand is doing. And above all, Father, I think our, it is our real concern here in this group of ladies to truly live lives that are pleasing to thee. So I ask that you would deliver us, each and every one of us, myself at the top of the list, deliver us from, from self-righteousness, from pride, from arrogance. Help us not to be ecclesiastical exhibitionists, but to be real. And we pray these things, Lord, for your glory in your name. Amen.